Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning we come to Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 26, which deal with the trial of Jesus before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. These are the words of God. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? So Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now the feast, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor, the governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was arising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Our God and Father, we pray that you would bring your word to us now with power by the Holy Spirit, that we would learn of you, be built up by your Spirit, to be your faithful children in this day and hour in which you have called us to live. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've seen, Matthew has been shining his spotlight on different actors in the plot to kill Jesus. First, it was Judas and Peter. Then it was the chief priests and elders. And this week, we see once again, it is the chief priests and elders under the spotlight as they interact with the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and with the Jewish multitude. And Matthew continues to emphasize the same point as we saw last week, which is that humanly speaking, the rulers of Israel, the chief priests and elders, were primarily responsible for putting Jesus on the cross. They are the driving force, humanly speaking. They have already plotted Jesus' arrest, paid Judas to betray him, solicited false testimony to frame him, wrongfully convicted him and pronounced him worthy of death, and carefully plotted how they will pressure the Roman governor into crucifying him. And in our text, we see them carry out their plan to perfection. Now, from the involvement of the crowd, it seems that the trial takes place 
in public. It's probably at, uh, on a raised platform, a judgment seat that was in front of the governor's residence. Now, this is not the same crowd that sang hosannas as Jesus entered Jerusalem earlier. That crowd was likely a pilgrim crowd that followed Jesus to Jerusalem, joined by any supporters that he had there in Judea. This crowd is going to be much more of a local Jerusalem crowd, given that they are gathered early in the morning, not down at the temple where the Passover visitors would be, but at the governor's residence. It also appears that the chief priests and elders have had a hand in gathering this crowd and certainly in working it ahead of time so that they would give the desired responses to the governor when the time came. You can see that in verse 20. Now that the chief priests and elders brought a political charge against Jesus, we can tell from Pilate's question in verse 11. Are you the king of the Jews? He's asking him that because that's what they have charged Jesus with. Now, if you remember, they convicted Jesus of blasphemy. That's a religious offense, but they're not bringing a religious charge against Jesus because Pilate is not going to be interested in that. If they tell Pilate that Jesus has blasphemed Israel's God, he's going to tell them to deal with it themselves. He is not going to use Roman capital punishment to enforce a matter of Jewish religious law. But a man claiming to be king, especially in Judea, a region known for unrest, that is a threat to Caesar. And that is a matter of Roman law that can and will be punished with crucifixion as had been demonstrated many times before. Many would-be messiahs had already appeared on the scene uh, and had been uh, crucified when they led uh, rebel movements. So the Jewish leader's tack here is to put political pressure on Pilate. And the veiled threat being that if he doesn't put Jesus to death, they will complain to Caesar that Pilate is not looking out for Caesar's interest. Nevertheless, in spite of all this, it is clear that Pilate does not believe the charge. Jesus answers the charge cryptically. You have said it, or as you say, and otherwise he stands completely silent in the face of the Jewish leader's torrent of accusations which they offer in support of their charge that Jesus is a rebel leader who presents a threat to Rome. Now, Pilate is astounded at Jesus' silence. Normally, silence might be taken as a sign of guilt, that one cannot refute the charges. But here it is clear that Jesus' demeanor, in contrast with that of the Jewish leaders, convinces Pilate that Jesus is innocent, and that the leaders are motivated not by any kind of loyalty to Rome, but by personal envy. In other words, Jesus presents no threat to Rome, but he does present a threat to the Jewish leaders, a fact which Pilate probably drew some enjoyment from inasmuch as we know from historical accounts that he did not get along very well with the Jewish leaders. So he's probably enjoying some of this. Now, in addition to Pilate's own very perceptive assessment that Jesus was innocent and the Jewish leaders are motivated by envy, Pilate had the plea of his wife who told him she had had a dream and that Jesus was a just man, verse 19. Now clearly she regarded this dream as being divinely sent, and this appears to have been the case. How else would this woman know that Jesus was not only innocent, but 
a just man. And here is an irony. This Gentile woman is more open to God's revelation than the Jewish leaders are. All she has to go on is one dream. The Jewish leaders have had documented miracle after miracle that Jesus has performed. And so we see once again a lesson that is brought to us throughout Scripture. Unbelief is not an information problem. It is a hardness of heart problem. So Pilate tries his politicians best to spare Jesus. I say politicians best because he did not act with any kind of true moral courage. He could have and should have found Jesus unworthy of death and simply released him. We know from other historical documented occasions that Pilate was not overly concerned with whether the Jews would riot or not. He had done other things which caused them to riot and acted with indifference. It is clear here that while Pilate assessed the situation correctly in terms of what was really going on, he also ultimately assessed it as a politician when it came to deciding what to do. The Jewish leaders have already laid down their veiled threat to complain to Caesar, and on top of that, the crowd is now threatening to riot if Pilate doesn't give them what they want. And this would give another basis for a charge against Pilate to Caesar, that Pilate could not keep the peace in Judea, which along with protecting Roman rule was his main job as governor. So there simply wasn't enough political gain for Pilate to take on the political risks of simply freeing Jesus, simply doing the right thing. But Pilate does make a politician's effort to free Jesus. He tries to be sly. He had a practice of releasing one Jewish prisoner during the Passover feast. And obviously this is an annual political move to try to engender some popularity with the Jews. But that means that he has to let the crowd decide who will be released. That's part of it. So Pilate asked them who they want released, Barabbas or Jesus. Now, interestingly, Barabbas' first name was also Jesus. And here's another irony. Pilate is asking the crowd, which Jesus do you want? Now, Jesus, Barabbas, was a rebel leader. As Mark tells us in Mark chapter 15, Barabbas and his fellow rebels had committed murder in a recent rebellion against Rome. So to Rome, Barabbas is an insurrectionist. He is a terrorist. To Judean nationalists, he is a freedom fighter, a patriot. But the bottom line and the real irony is this. Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas, was actually guilty of what Jesus of Nazareth was charged with and was innocent of, and that is inciting violent rebellion against Rome. And this shows just how duplicitous the Jewish leaders are. They really aren't concerned with maintaining peace and stability at all. If they were, they would want Jesus Barabbas punished and Jesus of Nazareth released. But here they want exactly the opposite. They want a man who is actually innocent, not relatively innocent, but actually innocent, punished. And they want it so badly, they are willing for a man who is actually guilty of the charge to go free. 
So whatever the true motivations are for the Jewish leaders, those motivations are powerful enough to overcome any sense of truth and justice. As a result, Pilate's political ploy backfires. The crowd asks for Barabbas, which is not altogether surprising in and of itself, since he would have been regarded as somewhat of a local hero, being a freedom fighter. But what is surprising is this. It's the crowd's reaction when Pilate asks them, well, what shall I do with Jesus? You want me to release Barabbas, but what do you want me to do with Jesus of Nazareth? The crowd says, crucify him, verse 22. So the real goal becomes apparent, which is to crucify Jesus. Even more than getting Barabbas released, the goal is to get Jesus crucified. Getting Barabbas released is a nice perk. Getting Jesus crucified was regarded as essential. And this comes from the chief priests and the elders who have persuaded and prepared the crowd as we see in verse 20. So the Jewish leaders really, really want Jesus dead. And they have pulled out all the stops. Now Pilate makes it clear that in his mind, he is not the one putting Jesus on the cross, but just giving in to what the Jewish leaders and the crowd are insisting upon. So he washes his hands of the matter. Now, of course, before God, he is not really washing his hands because he is the one with the authority to send Jesus to death or not. The Jews don't have that authority, and he acts as a politician. And in his politician's mind, he is free of the blood of this man. Of course, the way politicians think often diverges from the way reality is, from the way truth and justice is, and the way from the way God looks at things. But anyway, he washes his hands of the matter. Now, if Pilate is not taking responsibility for Jesus' crucifixion, the question arises, who is? In one of the most chilling scenes of Scripture, the crowd responds, let his blood be on us and our children, verse 25. Now, this statement, let his blood be on us and our children, has wrongfully become the basis of Christian persecution of Jews at various points down through the centuries. That is completely off-base. But it is not off-base because the Jewish people did not truly take the death of Jesus upon themselves. They did. And in doing so, they fulfilled Jesus' prophecy that they would fill up the guilt, top off the guilt of the fathers who killed the prophets, and that on that generation would come all the righteous blood going all the way back to Abel. That's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23. The reason this is not a basis for persecution of the Jewish people is that the Jewish people were a priestly people. That is, they were a people, a representative nation who represented all of mankind. You remember that God splintered mankind at the Tower of Babel in order to retard evil. And now he is dealing with all of mankind by dealing with one people. Because you see, people are basically the same. We're the same a lot more than we are different. And particularly in our fallen nature, we are the same. The Jewish people here did exactly what all peoples would have done. They show the true face of evil. They show its iron grip on humanity by crucifying their own Messiah by killing the Son of God. 
The point is, we were all there. We all did what they did. And when Barabbas goes free undeservedly, that's us going free. Now, as we turn toward application, we need to remember that Matthew is not telling us all this simply as a matter of history. He is making a point. And his point is to answer the question, why is it necessary for Jesus to go to the cross? Not from the human's perspective, not from the perspective of the elders and the chief priests who are acting wickedly. Why is it necessary from God's perspective for Jesus to go to the cross? Why isn't there another way to bring about salvation? Matthew answers this question by showing us the face of evil here. He shows us how cunning it is, how insidious it is, how pernicious and powerful, and what an iron grip it has on the best of fallen men. At the cross of Christ, we see not only the clearest picture of God's love and kindness, but also the clearest view of man's sin and wickedness. Last week, when we looked at the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin, we saw Matthew focus in on one of the primary effects of sin, and that is spiritual blindness. You remember that the Jewish leaders were more concerned with what accounting category to put the blood money under than with having put an innocent man on the cross. That's spiritual blindness. This week, Matthew focuses in on one of the central driving forces of evil, and that is envy. Verse 18 says that it was because of envy that the Jewish leaders handed Jesus up to be crucified. And Mark 15.10 says the same thing. What could motivate the chief priests and elders both liberals and conservatives, theologically, because you had both there, both appeasers of Rome and rebels against Rome, politically, you had both represented in the Sanhedrin, what could motivate them to put aside all their differences and come together as one and pull out all the stops, paying to have Jesus secretly arrested, to have an all-night-long trial, to work the crowd, in the morning to come up with a scheme to convince the Roman governor to do something he's not going to want to do? What could convince them to come together in that way to put a single uneducated preacher from Galilee on a Roman cross? And the answer is one word, envy. Now, you might think, now, wait a minute, God doesn't actually say here that it was because of envy that they delivered him. That's what Pilate says. Well, this is a case of God calling an expert witness regarding the subject matter of envy. Pilate was a pagan politician, and envy is what makes pagan politics go. Pilate lived and breathed and thrived in an environment where the oxygen is envy. He drove in a NASCAR race where the fuel is envy. And if there is anyone who would recognize envy when he saw it, it was Pontius Pilate. God basically says, don't take it from me, hear from one of your own. 
Now, we would not normally assign envy this kind of a central role in such a wicked deed. But the fact that it played such a central role in the wickedest act of human history, the judicial framing and murder of the Son of God, indeed, the wickedest act conceivably possible, the closest mankind can come to actually killing the living God, the fact that envy should play such a central role in that event should be a wake-up call to us what a central role it plays in fallen life in general. Envy is one of the most destructive forces in the world. Take away envy and the Son of God doesn't go to the cross. Take away envy and the Messiah is not rejected by his own people. Once we wake up to envy's role, we begin to see it show up all over the Bible. Acts 7, 9 says it was envy that led Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery. They were going to kill him, but they decided to be merciful and sell him as a slave. Such is the mercy of envy. In Ecclesiastes 4, 4, Solomon says, All the toil and skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. You see that it isn't just pagan politics that run off envy. Envy makes the fallen world go round. And envy is one of the biggest snakes in the church. James says that where you have envy and self-seeking, you have confusion and every evil thing. That's James chapter 3, verse 16. And James there is not talking about theory. He's talking about actual conflicts in the church. He is writing to Jewish Christians in synagogues all over the Roman Empire, most of which he has never been to. And he says, what is the cause of conflicts and fights among you? I'll tell you, you want and you covet. Coveting is just the other side of the coin from envy. And then you murder, you tear one another down, and you fight in war. Well, you know, they may have thought, well, wait a minute, James. You don't know us. You haven't met us. You haven't been here to our church. It's a little rash, not to mention judgmental, for you to say our conflicts come from selfish desire and envy. Well, no, it's not. The Holy Spirit led James to write what he did, and, James, and that James and the Holy Spirit knew what they were talking about. Envy makes the fallen world go round, and one of the greatest callings of the church is to produce a transformed environment where love makes the world go around instead of envy. But that is not an easy task. It wasn't in the first century, and it is not now. And I cannot tell you how many church squabbles, how many so-called theological fights I have seen where at the base you had a rat. And you had a snake, and its name was envy. Can there be legitimate doctrinal differences in the church? Of course. We're not perfect. There can be legitimate differences. But I can tell you I've seen so many of these different legitimate differences where there's an additional uh, added element that makes the fight turn nasty. It turns from a, uh, a disagreement, a respectful disagreement, a respectful debate over scripture into a nasty fight and at the bottom is envy.
Well, I hope I have convinced you of the relevance of this subject. And if I haven't done it so far, let me add that there is nothing that contributes to your personal unhappiness as much as envy. And there is nothing that will contribute to your genuine joy and blessedness as a Christian more than getting rid of envy. And that is certainly true for the local church as well. Now to do that, we need to drill down a bit. What exactly is envy? Well, in English, we sometimes use the word envy as a compliment. We say, I envy your creativity, I envy your talent, I envy your ability. And that's a way of saying, I admire you, I have affection for you. But that's not what the Bible calls envy. In the Bible, envy is a state of ill will towards someone because of some real or presumed advantage they have. In the Bible, envy is a state of ill will towards someone because of, because of some real or presumed advantage or blessing they have. So this kind of envy does not want to become like the other person. It wants to destroy the difference. It wants to destroy the advantage they have, even if it means destroying the other person. Envy in the Bible inevitably leads to some form of violence, some form of tearing the other person down or taking from them, and in extreme cases of outright murder. It may be tearing them down through gossip, through slander, through physically stealing from them, forcibly taking from them, or it may be, as in the case of Jesus, outright murder. But once you learn to recognize the face of envy, you see it showing up all over the Bible. You recognize that it was envy that provoked Cain to murder Abel. And one of the clearest pictures of envy comes in the most famous court case of the Old Testament, the case where the two harlots claim the same baby and Solomon has to determine the true mother. That's the passage that Chris read us this morning in our Bible reading. Now you remember the story. These two women live in the same house. So notice you have commonality. They know one another, may have been best friends. They live in the same house. They both give birth to a son. They both receive a blessing. You still have commonality. But then things change. One of their sons dies in the night. One of them loses their blessing. So you no longer have commonality. The mother of the dead son switches the babies in the night. And now both women claim the live son. Solomon cannot discern the truth directly, for there are only two witnesses in the case, and their testimony is diametrically opposed. Further, both witnesses have a motive to lie and the same motive to lie. So the only thing Solomon can do to sort out this case is to expose their hearts in order to distinguish between their hearts. That is the only way to the truth. So Solomon says, cut the baby in half and give half to each. This draws out the heart of each woman. The heart of the true mother is the heart of love. What is the heart of love? The heart that seeks the good of the object regardless of one's personal interests. So the heart of love says, give up, I give up my interests. The heart of love says, take my son and may I never see him again, but let him live. 
That is the heart of love. That's the heart of a mother. The heart of the false mother is different. She says, yes, cut him in two. Then neither of us will have a son. Now that is the voice of envy. It doesn't want to be like the other person. It wants to destroy the difference. The false mother here doesn't want to have another son to replace her son that she lost. So once again, she enjoys the same blessing as her friend. No, no, no. She wants to destroy the difference. Now you could say, well, the false mother was yearning for her own son. But you see that she didn't want the baby as much as she wanted the real, real mother not to have the baby. To which end, she was willing to have the child cut in half in her presence. That is the heart of envy. Now part of what makes envy so insidious, so pernicious and destructive, is that it thrives in a particular environment. And the environment envy thrives in is the same environment that love thrives in. Envy thrives in the same environment that love thrives in. That is the environment of personal relationships. Envy only shows up when we have some form of commonality with another person. You can see that with Cain and Abel. You can see it with Joseph and his brothers. You see it with the two harlots. And you can see it with Jesus and the Jewish leaders. You have some form of commonality, and often it is a close bond of friendship. Then a difference arises. One receives a blessing, the other does not. Or both receive a blessing, but then one loses it. And then envy arises, ill will, resentment, malice toward the one who has the blessing, real or perceived, that you do not have. Envy asks one constant question. What about me? Now actually, that question, what about me, is the question that pride asks. And remember that pride biblically is simply preoccupation with self. Pride may take the form of arrogance. Pride may take the form of self-pity. Woe is me. Nobody likes me. I guess I'll go eat worms. But pride is simply preoccupation with self. And preoccupation with self always asks the question. There's this subtext going on all the time. What about me? What about me? Somebody receives a blessing. What about me? A trial or hardship comes my way. It doesn't come your way. What about me? That produces an outlook in which we judge ourselves and others. We obtain our sense of self-worth and well-being by comparing ourselves with others. When we perceive ourselves at a disadvantage because someone has a blessing we don't, we take that as a statement that we aren't as good as them. And we begin to resent them. And we want to see them knock down a peg. That resentment we feel toward them, that idea we have that they think they're better than we are, that is envy. Now, envy absolutely destroys relationships. And I want us to be aware of exactly how this works so that we know how to discern it in ourselves. 
you start with a close relationship, a friend, a friend, maybe your best friend. Lots of commonality. You see things the same way. You're in the same position of life. You know, if you, whatever you go through, you, you look at it the same way, same kind of reaction, so you have a very close friendship. Then your close friend receives a blessing you don't. They get promoted and you don't. They get a raise and you don't. They make the honor roll and you don't. They make the varsity team and you don't. Or their child gets, makes the honor roll and your child doesn't. Or their child gets selected for varsity team and yours doesn't. Or if you operate in my circles, their book gets published and yours doesn't. They get invited to speak at some big conference with some big name theologians and you don't. This is the way it works. Or you incur a trial that they don't. Your position at work gets eliminated, but theirs doesn't. And we, we can go on and on, but you get the idea. Difference is interjected into commonality. Now, your friend's blessing or their lack of hardship makes you feel inferior all of a sudden. But the way you look at it, you don't go, well, I'm feeling inferior. I have a problem in myself. No, the way you look at it is you start to look at your friend and they start to look like they feel superior. When you look at them, it starts to look like they think they're better than you. Now, your friend, in fact, does not think they're better than you, and they're probably completely oblivious to your perceptions. They're happy for the blessing that's come their way. They wish you no ill will. But their unawareness for your plight seems to you like insensitivity, which makes it seem even more like they think they're better than you are. Now, at some point, your friend becomes aware that something's going on with you. You're not the same. You're suffering somehow, and so now they begin to express sympathy to you. How does that come across to you? Now your friend is being condescending. They're condescending to you, which makes them seem even more superior in their own eyes. They're rubbing salt in the wound. And all of this works together to give you a sense of injustice. You have been wronged. It gives you a sense of self-righteousness regarding the hurt that you have suffered. And it's not just the misfortune, it's the way your former friend has mistreated you. They are your former friend now. And whose fault is that? Well, it's their fault because they started acting different. They have betrayed you. And they deserve to be punished. They deserve to suffer for the suffering they have caused you. And you are now justified, righteously, to let others know about the wrong they have done to you. And here's where the murder starts. And don't forget that Leviticus 19 says that gossip, taking away somebody's good name, turning people against somebody, those are all forms of murder. The end result is that your former best friend is now your avowed enemy. That's the way it works. So what is the answer? How do we combat this pernicious problem that is still a huge, huge problem with Christians and a huge problem in the church? 
If we are called to Christ's likeness, then conquering envy is at the top of the list. Well, the first thing we have to do is to know our own hearts. We have to know our own hearts, and we have to be on the lookout for the very first stirrings of envy. There was a 17th century French nobleman named Francois de la Roquefoucauld, who was known for his very keen and unsugarcoated observations on human nature. This is what he said. In the misfortune of our best friends, we always find something that is not displeasing to us. Hear that? In the misfortune of our best friends, we always find something that is not displeasing to us. Why? Because we're getting our sense of well-being derived from a sense of superiority. If they've had a misfortune that we haven't, that's the same thing as us getting a blessing which they haven't, which makes us feel good about ourselves. You see this exact phenomenon with Job's friends. This is the problem with Job's friends. Job's misfortune, even though it's a horrible thing, there's just a little something in it that's not altogether displeasing to his friends. By the same token, when our best friends receive a blessing that we don't, there's just a little something in there that doesn't make us altogether happy. Okay? You know what I'm talking about? That is envy. That's how it first shows up. We're not really rejoicing with those who rejoice. There's a little part of us that's not rejoicing. We're not really weeping with those who weep. There's a little part of us that's not completely weeping. That is envy. Roquefoucauld also said, the truest mark of having been born with great qualities is to have been born without envy. So we need to be very aware of what it looks like when it first shows up and be on the lookout for it. The second thing we need to do is to recoil from envy. And one of the ways we can do that is by understanding what it does to us. Envy is single-person bondage. Envy is single-person bondage. Normally, slavery is a two-party affair, but the slavery of envy is single-party slavery, which is the worst slavery of all. It has been said that envy is the one vice that brings no pleasure at all. Think about it. Most vices bring at least temporary pleasure. Envy brings no pleasure ever, not now or in the future. Envy destroys both its target and its keeper. Right? If you, envy is like boiling acid. And if it scars the one that it splashes on, just imagine what it's doing to the pot that it's boiling in, which is us. Envy cooks. Envy cooks. It's interesting that... One of the words for envy in the Bible is the word that we get zeal from. And zeal in the Bible means to heat up. It means to heat up. It means to heat up in a good way. But the same word can be used in a good way or in a bad way. Now, in a good way, Jesus says to one of the churches in the book of Revelation, he says, you're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. 
You need to heat up. You need to have some zeal. You need to have your heart heated up by love. But a lot of other places, the same Greek word is used to describe what envy does to the heart. It cooks it. It heats it up. It microwaves it. But the point is this. Biblically, our heart is supposed to be heated by something. And it's going to be heated by something. It's either love that's going to transform our hearts and heat our hearts, and we're going to come to recognize that blessing is not a zero-sum game. The fact that somebody else gets a blessing doesn't mean there's less for us. You see that? That kind of zero-sum game kind of reasoning? Then you understand the connection that envy has with political tyranny. Every tyrant in the history of the world has manipulated envy in people to get themselves into power. The fact that they, you know why I'm driving this beat up Chevy? Because that guy's driving a brand new Mercedes, that's why. What do I want to do? Take it. Take it. Blessing of God is not a zero-sum game. God doesn't have a limited amount of blessing. Furthermore, God tells us that even the hardships that he brings into our lives, he scripts them. They have our name on them. I had a witness one time tell me, he grew up in the, in the ghetto, a very violent area of a large city. They said, a bullet don't got nobody's name on it. He's just talking about violence in the hood. That bullet don't care who it hits. Well, that's not the way trials and hardships are from the hand of God. They do have a name on them. When they come into our life, God scripts that there for our good. Even that is intended as our blessing. So one of two things is going to be heating your heart. Envy, comparing yourself to others, trying to maintain a, a conception of well-being by feeling superior to others. Envy is going to be heating your heart. Or, by the Holy Spirit, love will be heating your heart, which means you're free. You're free to rejoice with those who rejoice. You're free to really weep with those who weep. You're free to truly seek others' well-being without any concern for yourself. You don't have to be concerned for yourself. Why? Because the God of all the universe is concerned for you. You don't have to be free. What is heating your heart? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.